Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles one more time to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, Today we are going to be finishing up uh, this book, this letter, looking at the last five verses. Um, As we've been looking through this final section uh, of this, this book, we've been looking at the rather ordinary drawing attention to, I guess, the ordinary beauties and challenges and difficulties that the church has faced um, throughout the ages. These are common wonders and common problems uh, that have spanned the ages that emerge from the pages of these, from the, uh, well, the the last words of this letter, this final greeting. And uh, we've seen a number of, of challenges that emerged, uh, such as the challenges of sin against one another. We think of uh, Onesimus traveling back to Philemon, a man whom he'd abandoned responsibility and had quite possibly even robbed along the way. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, we noticed again, Mark is mentioned, and we noted Mark's, and Mark and Paul's rocky relationship and the need for uh, reconciliation between those brothers as well. We've noted the fact that Paul was imprisoned and the persecution and Aristarchus, his fellow prisoner, was with him. We've also noticed beauties along the way as well. Uh, Paul's love for the church, uh, Paul's commendation of faithful brothers that were with him. Uh, As well, we looked uh, last week at Epaphras, this faithful shepherd, uh, otherwise, you know, relatively unknown to us, and yet uh, was a, a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Colossian church. And so we're going to continue looking at uh, some of these rather ordinary challenges and, and wonderful things that we find in the church throughout the ages, including today, as we look at verse 14 to 18. So let's read those verses together, and then we'll jump in. So Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So again, as we consider these beauties and challenges that we find in church life, the first thing we notice is that there is the beauty of God's word. And the challenge of drift, the beauty and importance of God's word and the challenge of drifting from it. So Paul begins here by mentioning a greeting, giving a greeting to the Colossians from Luke, the beloved physician. Um, The evidence uh, and uh, the evidence includes the really unanimous agreement from the earliest Christians uh, is that this Luke is, of course, none other than the Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, In Acts, Luke is not mentioned by name. We know it's the same author as Luke from comparing the prologue, the first few verses from Luke and from Acts. And uh, Luke's not mentioned by name in Acts, except he does appear in uh, chapter 16, verse 10 and onward when when we start seeing the word we. He's talking about Paul traveling. Rather than he and they did this, they went here, they did that, it now begins we. So we know Luke joined up with Paul. Uh, in 1610, and was with him for much, if not all, of Paul's uh, second and third missionary journeys. 
including Paul's rather eventful trip to Rome at the end of the book of Acts, which includes his shipwreck uh, and all that went on there. Luke was with him for all of that. And so if, if Paul is indeed writing the book of Colossians from prison in Rome, then it's likely at the end of that journey they arrive in Rome and he's being held. And so Luke is with him. We know from Acts Luke was with him and now he sends greeting along to the Colossians. So as we think of Luke, it's, we can't mention him without considering the way, the remarkable way in which the Lord used Luke to write a significant portion of the New Testament. In fact, um, in terms of words written, he wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. So we think of Paul being this large contributor to the New Testament, and indeed he was. But just in terms of pure word count, uh, Luke and Acts makes up more than, than even Pauline literature. And yet, for all of that, for that rather significant place that Luke has in the Christian church, we don't really know a whole lot about the man. We know here he's called a physician. Uh, in the introduction to Luke's gospel, we learn a few things about him. We know that he was a student of the life of Jesus. He studied the matters very carefully. Uh, he spoke with and listened to eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, uh, and the ministers of the word, he calls them, the apostles. He paid attention, he listened to them, he studied from them, heard from them, and then he put together an orderly account that he wrote for this man named Theophilus, uh, and he writes all this in the first few verses of, of Luke chapter or of Luke chapter 1. And, uh, and, and we find there, not only did he do this research and present this orderly account for Theophilus, but he did this with a pastoral concern and heart, He says his purpose was so that Theophilus, so you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's he's trying to uh, put together this account to gird up, to strengthen Theophilus' faith in anyone who would indeed read Luke's account. So we know a few things about this man. That reveals a few things about him. But further, we also know, I would suggest, that Luke is a, a, a rather humble servant. Um, Because for all of his writing, um, he says very little about himself. Rather, he blends himself into his own narrative, just showing up in in we. That's it. Says nothing about the things he accomplished or did. We hardly even notice the man as he writes. Rather, he gives primacy of place to the Lord Jesus, to the spread of the gospel, and to the Holy Spirit's work through the apostles in the book of Acts. So we're reminded, as we think of Luke, he was an eyewitness to much of what he wrote in the book of Acts. And he was intimately acquainted with uh, Paul, obviously, and and likely others of the apostles, including Peter. Uh, In verse 15 and 16, Paul tells the Colossians here to greet the believers in Laodicea. And then he says, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter that is from Laodicea. This is, again, another reminder of the need for apostolic teaching and doctrine. The Colossians were being sent this letter, uh, and this letter would be preserved by the church throughout the ages such that we still possess it today. It was recognized as having authority. It was recognized as ultimately being inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was useful beyond the borders of Colossae, obviously into Laodicea, but beyond Laodicea as well. And of course, Paul also wrote to the Laodiceans, he tells us here. 
And that would have been understood as well to likewise have Paul's apostolic authority, such that it was also to be read to the Colossians. They were to swap out letters. These letters had useful usefulness more broadly than even the, the specific people that he addresses in them. Now, we know the, the letter to Laodicea has not survived, uh, yet it too would have carried Paul's authority, apostolic authority. Um, we know there's many letters that Paul penned that have not survived. Uh, we trust that the Lord and his sovereignty and goodness has preserved precisely what he wants us to have, that we have uh, everything we need for life and godliness, that his word remains sufficient. Uh, this is true, even though there are letters of Paul and other apostles that never did survive. And so just a reminder, as Paul is, again, writing, he's concluding this letter, read this amongst yourselves, read it in Laodicea, read their letter I sent to, to them. Luke has mentioned, we're reminded he wrote scripture. It has been absolutely essential throughout the ages, from the time of Paul onward, even before that, for the Lord's people to be guided by his word. We've seen the corrections that the Colossians needed in this book uh, to some of the things that they were being influenced by, some of these false teachings and such. They needed the word of God, and Paul was there to deliver them, to deliver it. And so we seek to stand on the word of God just as the Lord's people have always sought to do. God has given the church a sufficient word for all time, and this includes the early days and also now. A sufficient word for our times. Things change, certainly, but in another sense, as Ecclesiastes reminds us, there's really nothing new under the sun. God's word remains sufficient, even as we face new challenges and trials um, in our own age and time. Reminded of just the, the ordinary beauty of God's word that he has given to his people. That is our light and our lamp. But as we're reminded here also of the, of, of the importance of God's word for all time, uh, including now, we are also reminded of the challenge or of the error of drifting from the truth, of the temptation to drift into error. We're even reminded in this text of the reality of apostasy, of just walking away from the faith altogether. And so if you look at verse 14 again, as Luke, uh, Paul gives greeting from Luke, he also gives greeting from this man named Demas, the end of verse 14. In Philemon, at the end of Philemon, Demas is listed there uh, as, uh, along with others as being one of Paul's fellow workers. So again, that book of Philemon, probably written at the same time as Colossians, sent at the same time as well with Onesimus uh, and Tychicus taking those letters. And Demas is listed there as a fellow worker with Paul. And yet, at the, at the end of Paul's final epistle, final letter that we have in the New Testament, the book of 2 Timothy, we read a sad, a sad and sobering statement in chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy there and he says, this is towards the end of his life. He's, if you read 2 Timothy, he's not expecting to get out of prison this time. And he says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So it's interesting in those verses, there's a few familiar names from, from the end of Colossians here. 
Luke is mentioned still with the Apostle Paul at this point, at the end of his days. Mark is stated to be useful to him for ministry. He, he wants Mark to come. Again, they've repaired the breach in their relationship. Tychicus is mentioned again. He's, he's been gone to, to Ephesus this time, sent off. But all of these three men have stayed the course as Paul is finishing up his race. These men are still faithful. And yet Demas ultimately abandoned the faith, choosing, as Paul says, the present world instead of the world to come. This is one of the most painful realities that Christians can bear, is seeing fellow believers, particularly when it's been someone who's been in ministry, abandon the faith, walk away. One who's been a fellow worker, a fellow laborer in the gospel, abandon it. And yet, Jesus himself has prepared us for this. Sometimes this occasion uh, rattles people's faith when they see that happen or hear of that happening and think, well, if, then, then maybe this can't be true if someone like that would, 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 would wander away or abandon the faith. And certainly it is troubling. And yet Jesus makes it clear that we can expect this to happen, that this won't be totally shocking. In fact, you remember, of course, Judas, uh, one of the Lord's own 12, right under his own nose, who abandoned the Lord Jesus, betrayed him in the grossest of ways. Uh, I remember reading John Calvin talk about that, and he, he made the comment that one of the reasons he, he believes that, uh, that that, you know, we think of how, how, why would God allow Judas, why would this even happen? Uh, one of the reasons that Calvin points out is that when we see this kind of thing happen in our day, uh, we're not crushed completely by this, to realize that it happened even, even in the presence of Jesus himself. Of course, Jesus also told us there would be rocky and thorny ground hearers, those who would hear the, the gospel and, and seem to respond well to it initially, and everything would look pretty normal with them. They seemed to believe it and joyful, and yet in the course of time, they would fall away and, and, and the fruit would not come to maturity. This has always been a burden to bear in the church. Furthermore, this issue of drift, the problem of of drifting from the truth, we also see this in Paul's references to the Laodiceans. It reminds us of this threat. Now, the Laodicean church is mentioned once again at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, There, if you recall, Jesus dictates letters to seven different churches to the Apostle Paul. I mean, not Paul, John, the Apostle John. And the last of these letters is to the Laodiceans in chapter 3, verse 14. This was written right around roughly 30 years after the book of Colossians was written. Jesus appears to John and he's dictating this letter. And we find out there that the Laodicean church was in an awful state. The rather famous words, they are neither hot nor cold. They are, there's no use to them. Hot water has its purpose. Cold water had its purpose. Lukewarm didn't. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In fact, in that letter, there's no encouragement to the people of Laodicea. In some of the other letters to the churches, there's rebuke, but there's also some encouragement. Well, hey, at least you got this one thing going for you. This is not so with Laodicea. Instead, Jesus says he's on the outside knocking on the door. They have need of receiving him. They have need of having their shame removed. 
their eyes salved. While there may well have been true believers still there, the church as a whole was in a desperate state. I think the obvious conclusion here is that they had not heeded the instructions of Paul from the letter that he sent to them to this letter that was read amongst them. Such that 30 years or so later, Jesus has this very stern rebuke. Drift had occurred. Departure from apostolic doctrine and practice. And so as we return here to Colossians 4, as we get to verse 17, we find an exhortation that is not lacking in significance and importance. Where Paul says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Archippus is a minister. He's a pastor. He's listed in the book of Philemon as a recipient of that letter. There he's called a fellow soldier on account of this ministry that he possesses. So very likely he served as a pastor in Colossae, perhaps alongside Epaphras. Remember, of course, Epaphras is with Paul at the time of this letter. We don't know much about Archippus. Was he wavering? Was he ready to compromise? And, and, and Paul's telling the people to help him, you know, to, to encourage him to not go down that road, to rather fulfill his ministry. That's possible. But it's also entirely possible that he is standing strong. And this is just a, an affirmation of that. And even a way of Paul inviting the church, calling the church to support their pastor to fulfill his ministry as he is battling with the false philosophies that are infiltrating the church um, to stand behind him. I mean, how helpful and encouraging is that for a pastor, a man like Archippus, to have the church behind him saying, fulfill your ministry, right? Don't, don't give up, like stand here. Fulfill your duty, even when it's difficult. The reality of, of, of those who drift from the truth of God's word makes this uh, exhortation meaningful. And this, this problem of, of drift, this sin, uh, it's an ancient one. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. It, believing a lie instead of the truth of God's word when they, of course, plunged humanity into sin. And so Christ, we know, has come. He has brought about redemption for sinners. He has established his church. We know that the church will prevail. Christ will prevail. Uh, This is where our our comfort and hope lies. As we think about not drifting, as we desire not to drift, our hope is he will do good work in us. We also know we're called to vigilance in this matter. We're called to guardedness, to defend the faith to ward off wolves, to battle false philosophies that come against the truth of God's word, to destroy arguments, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, taking thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. And so let us, as individuals and as a church, not neglect nor despise this element of our task. Um, there's, there's, there's very little... Uh, Room for discernment, uh, little appetite for it amongst many. Of course, let us do it as best we can, maintaining Paul's exhortation to have 
to be gracious in our speech and have it seasoned with salt. Um, But let us not despise this aspect of the Christian life. Drift is not a a game. False teaching is not a, a minor or light thing. So let's not despise that element of our task. Let us not also be presumptuous or naive about dangers. So we see again here the beauty and the importance of the word of God and also the danger and error of drift. Secondly, we also find the beauty of being fools for Christ and the challenge of opposition. See the beauty of being fools for Christ and the challenge of opposition. So we we find in this text a few notable Christians. Uh, Luke, Paul is here, and others. Mark, earlier. But these men and, and women as well, at least one woman mentioned, are nevertheless, though we might find them to be notable people, notable Christians, authors even of Scripture, uh, men whom the, the Lord used mightily, they are nevertheless viewed as nothing in the eyes of the world. They're fools. Luke, the physician, it would seem traded in whatever gain he could have had through that profession in order to accompany Paul and stay with him until the end. Remember Second Timothy 4.11, he's still there at the end of it all with Paul. In verse 15, Paul sends greeting to Nympha and to the church in her house. Uh, it is quite likely that she is a, uh, was a wealthy widow. That's how most understand this. Um, obviously with a big enough home, big enough house that she could welcome uh, the church into her home. I think there's comfort in this. Uh, obviously, we as a church have been without our own space and building for seven plus years now. And at various points in time, including recent months, this, this has caused frustration in different ways. I certainly think there are a number of good benefits from possessing a, a permanent building and a permanent location. And yet, we're reminded here that the early church had neither of these things either. And I, I think this is a, should be a comfort to us. It is indeed possible to be a true and legitimate church without possessing a building. That might seem weird to some people uh, because we start to, in time, add traditions and add things to what we think a true church has to be. You have to meet at a particular time on Sunday. You have to have a certain building that has certain classrooms divided up to have certain things going on in those classrooms at certain times. And we add all this stuff. And these people did not have this space either that Paul is writing to. There's a church meeting in this woman's home. The church was not a glamorous institution in the first century. They lacked worldly power. They lacked prestige. But nevertheless, they possessed the truth of God. They proclaimed the hope of the world to mankind. And then in verse 18, the letter concludes with the words, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul has dictated this letter, obviously, to somebody who's written this down. And now here at the end, he picks up the pen himself, and this is essentially his signature. He's signing this to show them, yes, this is really from Paul. 
Uh, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, he makes it clear that's why he, he does that. It's a mark of, the, of genuineness. And as he signs off, he tells them to remember his chains. Here again, we're reminded of the challenge of opposition and the beauty of being a fool for Christ. Here is one of the probably greatest Christian men ever. Certainly one of the best, if not the most successful, fruitful, productive missionaries the church has known, the Apostle Paul. And here he is, bound, in chains, imprisoned. In the eyes of the world, he's nothing. He's just perhaps a a nuisance. He's a troublemaker. The command to remember his chains is certainly, I think, a request for prayer. That the Colossians might pray for him in his circumstances. Uh, No doubt we saw implied in in verses 2 and 3 that he probably wanted release from his, his, his imprisonment as he wanted to continue to go on preaching. We saw that back in verses 2 and 3. We also have this remember my chains as a reminder that Paul was so committed to the truth he preached that he was willing to bear any reproach and suffering. And if the Colossians or if you and I are uncertain about suffering for Christ, if it's worth it, we remember the great Apostle Paul knew prison. And I think it's worth it to just take a couple moments and consider how this could be. Uh, to think about how a person can, can bear the thought of losing everything they have to wind up in prison for Christ. To consider what's going on with Paul that this is acceptable. Paul is not bitter about his chains. He is still doing all he can to serve the Lord's church. He's in prison, but he's dictating letters. He's signing them. He's sending people here. He's sending people there. He's, he's trying to fulfill his duties even so. How can this perspective be had by somebody? Well, in a number of places, Paul answers this. He makes it clear why he was content to, to deal with this. In Philippians 3, which we read earlier, is one of those places where after explaining the, the, the advantages and the gains that he had as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was advancing beyond people in his own age. He was on the, you know, he was the star. He was a zealot for the truth of of well, of Judaism as it was, it was obviously a false religion at that time. But he was excelling, he had lots going for him. But Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. If the world would rage against Paul, there is no sacrifice too costly for him because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that comes by faith, not by any works that Paul could possibly muster. Paul 
knew. He had a, a real sense and understanding of his sinfulness before Almighty God, before his Creator. He knew his own works could never possibly make up for the sins that he had committed. He knew he could not gain for himself a right standing with God through any work of his own. He had done really well externally according to the law, and yet it was apparent to him he had failed miserably. And this is the realization that each one of us must come to. You are a sinner against your almighty and righteous creator. And your works cannot undo them. They cannot overcome them. They cannot make you right with God. Only through faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus can you be forgiven. As Jesus is the one who took the punishment of sinners upon himself, paid for those sins upon the cross, died, was buried, and then rose again from the dead in victory over those sins. And only those who trust in him are granted his righteousness, which he secured when he came to earth and lived his perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father. This is the righteousness Paul talks about that is received by faith. He mentions in Philippians 3 that we just read. It is Christ's righteousness earned that it's credited to the account of the believer upon faith in Christ. The law of God, his demands, what he says is righteous and holy, this law goes out and ultimately brings condemnation to every man and woman. As it reveals that we fall short of God's glory. It reveals when God says to love your neighbor as yourself and we have not done that. It exposes us as sinners. The law further exposes us as liars, as thieves, as idolaters, as adulterers in our hearts, if not in our practice. We have not loved God. We have not loved neighbor. And this law brings condemnation to every man and woman, to every sinner. And yet the gospel goes forth offering grace and pardon to sinners in the name of Jesus. Reconciliation with holy, almighty God comes only through faith, through believing in his son Jesus, receiving the provision that God himself has made in his son Jesus for your sins. And so God calls all men and women everywhere to repent and to believe this good news. And Paul knew that this gift of salvation is the most precious thing imaginable. It was, it was everything to him. He, he understood this reality of his sin, of his deserving of God's condemnation, and of the, the, the value of this gift of, of salvation. And he also further knew that not only did this salvation, this gift of God's grace, involve pardon for our sin, but also received a bestowal of an inheritance upon the sinner, uh, eternal life, forever dwelling with the Lord in the new earth. And so Paul, therefore, could live with the loss of all earthly goods, even his own life, ultimately. He could stomach, with this reality, he could stomach being a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, as he, as he describes himself in 1 Corinthians 4. As one who deserved God's judgment and eternity in hell, he had gained everything in Christ. And if the pathway to glory brought Paul through prison, then so be it for him. Joy in this life for Paul was not rooted in earthly goods, was not rooted in anything that this earth could provide him. 
Contrast that with Demas as he describes Demas, who, who wanders off in love with this precious, this, this present world, Paul says. The fear of man and the love of the world are very real and very deadly poisons. And perhaps more than ever for, for us now, we're, we're coming face to face with this. As our world turns further and further and further away from the things of the Lord, and it becomes more and more difficult to just try to live a quiet life of, of service to the Lord and of obedience to Him. As we consider that our parliament is ready to pass laws that effectively make it illegal for us to, to counsel somebody and tell somebody that, that homosexuality or changing your gender is sinful. It's all vague language, so we're told that we'll be okay, but it's vague enough that obviously that's, you know, there's a very good chance that's not going to be the case. That we will very likely be in trouble for proclaiming this to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. We already have the presence of hate speech and they're ramping all of these things up. There's, there's lots of reasons to be troubled. But again, we, this is all the more reason why we need to grasp what Paul sees here. Where, where Paul's standing, that his eternity is secure. And there's nowhere to turn. There's nowhere else to go. We can't walk away from this. It's a fool's bargain to choose this earthly life. However shiny, whatever promises are made, one day we will die and we will stand before God. Ecclesiastes, very good at reminding us of this. Now, however great your life seemed to be, however much wisdom you gained in this life, you will one day be in the grave. And then what? We stand before God. And so the importance of seeing and clinging to the hope, the Christian hope, it's worth anything that we will have to suffer. Whatever reproach will come our, our way. Jesus himself said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That is Demas. He sought to save his life and enjoy the world and he, will, he lost it in the end. Provided he didn't repent. Jesus goes on, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Truly, we need to look up from the earth and, and view things through an eternal lens. This will surely help us as we live in a difficult time, as we suffer various trials and difficulties, even just not being around people as much as, as we would like to be and as we normally have been, whatever it is, if, if, if outright persecution, state-sponsored, comes our way, whether that's soon, whether that's in, in, in years to come, these things are not new in the history of the world. They're not new in the history of the church. And we can still, with Paul, if we look to eternity... Find reasons to be joyful. Find reasons to be prepared to suffer. And to even welcome it, knowing that our eternity is secured, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul closes this, he pronounces a very brief benediction. As he says, grace be with you. Indeed, we are in need of God's continued grace, his continued 
gracious power to keep us and sustain us. And this is our hope, that he will indeed do this as we continue to to look to his word and to pray for his help. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your your salvation. We thank you for your gracious gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Father, we tremble at much. We, We tremble at suffering that may or may not come our way. But Father, I pray that you would give us truly a perspective that goes beyond our own earthly lives. Father, help us to to live in light of eternity. Father, may we likewise grasp that to be found in, in your Son is the greatest thing and that it's worth any cost that might come our way. Father, I pray that you would give joy to your people in light of this. That we would certainly call evil evil, mourn evil that we see around us in whatever form it takes, and yet still find comfort and joy in the gospel. Father, we thank you for your grace. I pray that you would strengthen each one of us, that you would keep us coming back to your word, that you'd keep us being people of prayer, and that you would indeed preserve each person here. Father, that one day we would all together worship around your throne. Father, uh, build your people, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.